0: Amen. If you have a Bible or wish to turn in the Black Pew Bible to the good news according to Luke, Luke chapter 2. This morning I want to look at verses 1 through 7 with you. And again, if you're visiting with us today, thank you so much for coming. We're delighted you're here. I'd love an opportunity to greet you after the service here at Redeemer. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And Through it, God brings us good news of great joy uh, through His Son, the gift of God's Son, which, of course, Christians throughout the world are celebrating, uh, particularly uh, this Christmas season. God became human to bring humanity back to God. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And in the passage before us, I think will be familiar to most, so we'll have to pay extra attention to hear it with new ears. Uh, it's a passage I want you to listen for um, when God did this, and where God did this, and how God did this. And in doing so, I want us to see and rejoice in God's sovereignty, and God's providence, and God's humility And God's sympathy with us as people. And so let me invite you to pay attention to God's word from Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Amen. This is God's word. Now let's look to him together in prayer. Father, I pray that you would show us the glory of your son and do good to our souls. So be our teacher this morning in jesus name i pray amen amen in uh, december of 2011 a kind of astonishing event in its own way occurred on a basketball court uh between north carolina and texas north carolina coach roy williams did something completely unexpected You have to understand who Roy Williams is. He's uh, the best, uh, among the best uh, college coaches in basketball ever. Last year, his team won the national championship. He's had three national championship teams. He's taken uh, nine teams to the final four in his career at both Kansas and North Carolina. He's the fourth all-time winningest coach in NCAA history. He's the only coach in NCAA history to have led two different programs to at least four Final Four appearances. He's already been inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame and the College Basketball Hall of Fame. So there he was amidst his players coaching them. There was a timeout, and there he is in suit and tie when you normally expect the head coach to be talking to his players about the next play he sees a wet spot on the court which of course is a hazard to players and he grabs a towel he bends down and he wipes the sweat of his players off the floor of the court now you understand that there are ball boys for such things there are court assistants for such things I mean there are assistant coaches for such things there are players who can do such things? Not multi-millionaire, highly successful head coaches. The crowd, seeing, began to murmur a little bit. And as they murmured, more began to direct their attention. And as they observed, they got louder and louder until they applauded the head basketball coach wiping player sweat off the court. One, we might say, so high in his field, stooping so low to serve simply delighted people. I wonder if Christmas delights you to see one so high stoop so low to serve you. This Christmas we... Have such a sight in Jesus, and I hope we take even greater pleasure in Him. Now, I want you to see three chief things about Him that Luke tells us in this passage. He speaks of the when and the where and the and the how, or he speaks of the timing of the birth of Christ, and he speaks of the place of the birth of Christ, and he speaks of the manner of the birth of Christ. Now. Let me direct you to those things. And in verses 1 through 3, in the first place, the timing of the birth of Christ. And I want you to see how this reminds us of God's sovereignty, even in our own lives, as in Jesus. Uh, When was he born? Luke is interested for you to know. It was when? Well, it was when Caesar Augustus called for a census in all the Roman-occupied world. And it was likewise when... Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, just stop there for a moment. Sometimes people will say, you know, it doesn't really matter whether the Bible is, you know, correct in the stuff that it says. What really matters is, is the meaning behind it. Uh, It's not whether uh, the facts are important, but just the interpretation of the events. That's what really matters, people will say. But you understand that's not Luke's priority. Luke doesn't think that way. Luke was both a physician, so he was uh, very much accustomed to paying attention to detail, but he was also a historian. He gave us both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And in Luke chapter 1, at the very beginning, he writes to a friend saying, I set out to research Uh, he interviewed eyewitnesses and then to draw up an orderly account of the things about jesus and so he's writing here as a as a as a uh, as a historian who thinks that it's really important we know when and where jesus was born because it really happened in a time and place it really matters it matters that god really came to earth born into a human family that this isn't just some Fairy tale we tell ourselves because it sounds good or makes us feel better for the next few years of life. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if, uh, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile, our faith is in vain, and, and we are to be pitied among all men for believing such nonsense. It, it matters that it really happened. And it really happened in a particular time. And Luke tells us exactly when it happened. And, and what you see here in, in, is uh, the sovereignty of God uh, in the history or at work in the history of the world and over the kingdoms of this world. I mean, just when Israel was at a low ebb and Rome was uh, a rising tide of might and power. Uh, just when Israel was but like a client state of the pagan Roman Empire, just when Israel could barely govern her own affairs or be allowed to govern her own affairs and and Rome and her overlords were giving oversight over most of the known world when when Israel hadn't had a descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem for five hundred years uh, but uh, but they're taking orders from pagans just. When all this is going on, then God shows up on behalf of his people. When his people are at their weakest, we might say, then he shows up strong on their behalf. Interestingly, through his own weakness in the form of a baby. And uh, notice some things about Caesar Augustus here, some details. Caesar here is the, this one is the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, who's uh, famous perhaps to you. When Julius Caesar was killed, uh, this Caesar Augustus was uh, sort of um, the major inheritor in his will. And as Caesars did, they called for a census of the people. They wanted, to, they wanted to enroll the names of all the people on the government rolls. Why did they want to do that? They wanted to do it for money, and they wanted to do it for the military. I mean, you want to know who's in your kingdom so that you can tax them and take their money, but you also want to know who are the potential fighting men in your kingdom so that you can draft them into your military. And if you're an overlord over other nations you want to know who's a possible threat to you as well and so uh Caesar Augustus here has his own purposes in mind in calling for this census but Luke is reminding you that God had his own purposes in mind at the same time God's purpose was to get Jesus born in Bethlehem uh, Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. That's what's going on here. Caesar is a, we might say, tool in the hand of God. The most powerful institution in the world uh, and the most powerful men in the world are pawns here in service of the king of kings and lord of lords for the saving of his people. And this is important for us to believe. It's important. We have a trustworthy God who keeps his promises at the exact moment he intends to keep them. No later, no sooner, but right on time. And when it's the right time for the Savior to come to his people, uh, while they're under the thumb of the mighty Romans, when they are weak, when things look bleak, then that's the right time, and God shows up. He's reliable like that. And uh, J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop of uh, a couple centuries ago now, uh, draws this comfort from the passage. He says this, Let us ever rest our souls on the thought that our times are in God's hands. He knows the best season for sending help to his church and new life to the world. Let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us, as if we knew better than the King of Kings when relief should come. So I ask you, are you waiting on the Lord in your life? Are you trusting in him that he knows what he is doing as he works for your good? And he will arrive at just the right time. Martin Luther had a friend named Philip Melanchthon uh, who was uh, often anxious about many things, always worrying about something. And Luther said to him, Cease, Philip, from trying to govern the world. You can't do it, but there is one who does. Do you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 17, the story of Elijah the prophet? Elijah needed a place to hide out from Ahab and his horrible wife who sought his destruction because he had decreed on God's behalf that there was a coming drought. And he lived for a time in the brook east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Everything seems okay in his experience. He's hidden away from those in authority. He's getting his food. He's getting his drink. But then after a while, it says the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land, just as he had decreed. And now everything isn't so fine. So God told him, I want you to go to Zarephath to a widow there. And so he came to the gate of the city and behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Everything's fine she's got water in the midst of a drought I'm gonna get what I need and she said as the Lord your God lives I have nothing baked only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug and now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die everything's not so fine. God sent him to a widow who's on her last legs who figures she and her son are going to perish from starvation. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be spent shall not be empty until the day that the lord sends rain upon the earth you see what he's say everything's going to be fine god will provide in his own way at his own time for now the flour and oil won't run out later there will be rain and harvest and food do you see and so she went And she did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Everything turned out okay. But you understand the anxiety of the hearts of the people in the midst of waiting on God to work everything out. Okay but he is the sovereign god he is the king of kings he has his purposes he has his plans he decrees a savior will come at just the right time and at just the right time that savior comes you can trust a dependable god like that now the second thing i want you to see is this the place where he was born And how it points us here to the providence of God, even in our own lives, verses 4 and 5. It says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Mary here is married to a carpenter from Nazareth. She hasn't slept with him yet. They haven't consummated the marriage. They're betrothed to one another. They're committed to one another. But she has been found to be with child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, we learn in Matthew's gospel, initially thought, I'll quietly divorce her. She's done something really wrong. But then the angel comes and tells him, no, it's okay. Go ahead and marry her. The child is Of the Lord, and so the virgin conceives and bears a child. Well, there she is in Galilee, which is some 90 miles or so uh, to get to Bethlehem if you travel around Samaria, which the people did in that day. But we know that the prophet Micah, as we read in our service earlier, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says that the, the Messiah is coming from where? From Bethlehem. He's going to be born not in Nazareth, not in Galilee, but in Bethlehem. So how do you get the Virgin Mary pregnant, nearing the time of her delivery, to travel perhaps some 90 miles, not in a luxury automobile, but by mule or donkey or even on foot in order to fulfill a prophecy. Well, if you're God, you order the events because he's God in heaven above and God on the earth below. And he orders all things in heaven and on earth. He governs the affairs of men. And God simply, again, uses the most powerful man on earth in that day, Caesar Augustus, to call for a census and require that everybody ought to go back to their hometown. Now, what's the strategy there? Probably it's something like this. You know, I want to know who you are so I can tax you and so I can draft your, your, your young man. But you're going to get a kind of family reunion out of it. So go back to your hometown. And people are going to know if you're not there, if you don't show, if you duck and hiding. So it's a kind of strategy on his part. He decrees this tax and Joseph says to Mary, we've got to go, sweetheart. I know you're maybe eight months pregnant. I know it's a long and terrible journey. I know this isn't what you want, but we have to go. And we'll get a family reunion out of it to boot. So let's go. And they go. And it fulfills Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, are too little To be counted among the clans of Judah. It's just a tiny little out of the way place. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And again, as far as the Roman emperor knows, he's just doing exactly what he wants to do. And as far as the King of Kings goes, he is doing exactly what he wants to do. Two wills working concurrently in the same event. One to accomplish the will of man, one to accomplish the sovereign saving purposes of God. And so you see that God is sovereign not only in the timing of Christ's birth, but also the place, the location of Christ's birth. He is sovereign over every detail. Just as this one who was born says to us, this same God is sovereign over every detail of your life. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that not a hair can fall from our head apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. He is, He's that concerned about every detail in our lives. The psalmist took comfort in this idea of the sovereign providence of God Over the days of our lives, in Psalm 139, he says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And it's a source of comfort to him. Are you taking comfort in God's sovereign providential rule of all the events of this world? The Heidelberg Catechism has a wonderful question and answer on this subject. The first question asks this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Do you know that comfort? God's son was just exactly where God wanted him. God moved the heart of a king to call for a census to get an eight-month pregnant woman to travel 90 miles just so Jesus could be born exactly where he needed to be born to be the Savior of you. Don't you know, just like Jesus, God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. No less in your experience than in jesus's now the final thing i want you to see is this in verses six and seven you see the manner of christ's birth and how it shows us the humility and therefore the sympathy of christ in our experience it says while they were there the time came for her to give birth verse six and verse seven she gave birth to her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end She gives birth to a son in circumstances no mama would choose for herself. They arrive late, perhaps, in Bethlehem. The inn is already full anyway. Joseph doesn't have, evidently, the financial means to secure some other kind of living arrangement on their behalf. He's too poor for that. Probably they were pointed to a stable or a room off of a building where animals were kept Out of the cold, and uh, we can perhaps imagine that there were some sheep, some goats, perhaps some cattle, some donkeys, some mules, making noise, fouling the hay, while Mary goes into labor pains. Perhaps we can imagine strangers wandering in to check on their animals, new people arriving, seeking a place themselves for shelter. And she delivers the child and she lays him not in a bassinet but in a manger, which is what? It's just simply a feeding trough for animals. And so you have Jesus born into the lowliest of conditions in this life. And there is nothing about this that is a coincidence. There's nothing about this that is mere Chance or happenstance it is the deliberate choice of almighty God to humble himself to come in the lowliest of conditions and that reminds us of how much he cares for us for when we had turned our backs on him in the garden of paradise he did not turn his face away from us but he determined to rescue us by a redeemer, by coming, being born into a low condition, not in paradise, but in, uh, placed in a manger among the animals, to sympathize us with us in sorrow and suffering, to be rejected, as you know, by his own creatures and then nailed to a cross to be killed there. There is nobody then he cannot relate to. This kind of humility, voluntarily taken, points to his sympathy with us. He can sympathize with children. He was born into a family. He's the firstborn son, the oldest child. He undoubtedly faced rivalry from uh, his brother's jealousy. We know Uh, late in life uh, that his family didn't take him seriously they thought he was crazy they thought he was mad uh, out of his mind Uh, Jesus can sympathize with those who have lost a parent for when we see Jesus at the end of his life uh, at the cross we see him only with Mary Joseph is not On the scene, and Jesus, as the firstborn son, takes care of his mother, saying to his friend, John, John, behold your mother, and saying to his mother, Mother, behold your son, even in his hour of death, making provision for her well being. But where was Joseph, his earthly father? Simply gone from the scene. Jesus can sympathize with those who are misunderstood. He was a sinless child, yet we can imagine he was undoubtedly disciplined by his parents and perhaps for the failings of his own siblings, as so many parents do, walking in upon a scene and assuming that each is at fault in their own way. When the fights break out, when kids are picking on one another, Jesus was sinless in those circumstances. He had no fault. He loved his neighbor. But you can imagine growing up in the home of sinful parents as the creator of them, the challenge of that life, of being misunderstood and even suffering at the hands uh, due to the frailty, the weakness and even the sin of his own parents. You can see that he sympathizes with those who work for a living. As best we can assume, growing up in the home of a carpenter, he would have been taught that trade. Taught to make things, to sell things, laboring for a day's wage, working with his hands, negotiating with clients, dealing with unsavory types in business. He can sympathize likewise with those who grieve. He grew up to weep at the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had died he shared the grief of his family in the murder of his cousin John the baptizer he can sympathize with those who suffer in all kinds of ways he was afraid in the garden of Gethsemane as he looked upon the coming crucifixion and said father if there is any other way let 's do that, and he wept great drops of blood under the strain, knowing the agony he would face under the wrath of God, in the place of sinners. He suffered cruelly at the hands of his creatures, you know they mocked him, you know they lined him up in military formation, and they marched past him, spitting in his face and pulling at his beard that they they whipped his back uh, till he was nearly dead from that stripping him naked nailing him to a post thrusting a spear into his side and in the end abandoned by his closest friends who said i don't know him you see the humility and the sympathy that jesus can have with you and me whatever we have faced whatever pain and loss loneliness And heartache, whatever weakness or poverty or humiliation or abuse or abandonment we have faced. We have a God who has faced those things too. And he can help us. He was fully human. Fully God, yes. But fully human at the same time. Becoming man without ceasing to be God and he became fully man to save mankind fully if Jesus had not been fully human he could not have died in our place and paid the penalty that was due to us for our sin because it is humanity that sinned he had to be human to bear the penalty that human sinners must bear do you appreciate that sacrifice do you feel unworthy of that sacrifice of course you feel unworthy of it you are unworthy of it that's the whole point but consider the people who find joy in this humble savior a poor carpenter with a teenage bride undoubtedly completely misunderstood by family and friends and strangers oh she's pregnant is she Surrounded by animals, and surrounded by shepherds, not the pleasant shepherds you see depicted in the sentimental Christmas cards, but real shepherds, uh, dirty, uh, smelly, uh, weather-beaten men who spent all day and all night out with the sheep. Shepherds aren't elite, they weren't even liked by regular people, they were outcasts in society. Partly because they were always ceremonially unclean in the Jewish religious tradition and so they couldn't attend the temple. And partly because shepherds were notorious as a class of people for taking what didn't belong to them. For stealing other sheep, for pastoring their sheep on other people's uh, places. The law considered shepherds unreliable and forbade their testimony in court. They were the lowest in society, poor, outcast, frowned on, distrusted, unreliable. And yet these are the ones to whom the message of salvation first came. Not to the elite, not to the high class, not to those who have it all together, but to the humble poor. And since it came to the humble, the only thing standing in the way of any of us, With greater means, greater social mobility, uh, greater standing in society than they. The only thing standing in the way of us enjoying his birth like they is simply our pride. Are you too proud to say, I need to be saved by this humble God? Too proud to say, I need him to pardon my sins? then you will never know him. But for the poor and the needy and the spiritually weak and sinful, he is not too proud to stoop down and rescue. May we all know the joy of knowing him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son and I pray that he would be lifted high in our eyes. Help us to trust in you, Jesus. Forgive our sins. Help us to see your glory in your humility and your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.